Welcome to Hep Talks. I'm Luke Kemper, and today I'm here with Alex Atherton, former head teacher and current Hep School Improvement Partner, among other things. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Luke. Great. Okay. So the first thing we are going to talk about is your route or route into headship. We'll go with route. We'll root. go with root. Root. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always get confused about that because it's it's one of these words that I think can be interchangeably pronounced. Actually, I'll, 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 well, I'll, I'll shall interchangeably do it too as we as we go along. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so. Your route into headship was a little bit, uh, let's say, non-traditional or, or different. Well, so. it, it was definitely a bit odd. I mean, I, I, um, I suppose, so I was a secondary head, two big secondary schools in London. And, I mean, you, you could tell I hadn't really planned to be a teacher at all because my main part of my degree was in government and politics and no one does that if they're thinking about teaching. So I ended up sort of, once I went into it and decided I liked it, so after recession, early 90s, right, I needed professional qualification, but as soon as I got in the classroom, I, you know, I, I liked it and seemed to take to it. It was then about, well, what extra responsibilities can I have? Because there's no like department where you've got other people in it, all those kinds of things. So I ended up joining a senior team without having been a head of department or a head of year. You know, so the route to being senior was definitely different. And I think the only reason I ended up being senior was because I spent the 90s in Manchester. and uh, So I went to university there, first job there, and my mates were sort of leaving one by one to go to different places. So I applied for a job in Sheffield, a job in Birmingham, a job in London. The London job was the senior job. And the deadline came up first, and to my amazement, I got it. So I suppose at that point, I was sort of known as the data guy, I suppose. And this is before, you know, I'm old enough to remember not only sort of before league tables really being a thing, but, you know, some schools didn't add it up either. You know, it's going going back in time. So, yeah, to to come through from a small subject, a small A-level subject, try and find additional things to do where you could get more responsibility. But then when I was there, I suppose, you know, when the headship came up, the job I was in, I'd been at a school just over a year as a substantive deputy. And to my surprise and everyone else's, the head said that he was going and he was going to quite a big national education job at the time. So it was a case of, well, at some point, I'll probably want to be a head teacher. I suppose I've ended up at this point, I'll have a go. And then I remember standing in my front room, taking the phone call from the chair of governors at exactly the point where my signal dipped out. The coverage wasn't quite the same in 2006 as it is now. You know, being pretty amazed that I was being offered it. And then two minutes later, he phoned back to say, you're not getting cold feet, are you? And there was part of it that couldn't get the words out. But also, part of me was just uh, trying to wrestle with a signal and moving to different parts of the house without deciding to swear down the phone at the other end that I couldn't, I couldn't give a proper yes. So it was unusual in that the subject was unusual, but also I'd only been in teaching 10 years and I, I didn't really have a, you know, a great plan to be whatever really. But then I suppose I found that when opportunities came up, 
I tried to do my best at having a go at them, but also had in the back of my mind, because I wasn't English, math, science, or, you know, core subject, or even foundation subject, not even a national curriculum subject, there was a bit of a fear of you best take the opportunities that are there, because if not, you could end up getting stuck. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So that fear of wanting to sort of not be stuck somewhere you know still in the same school 20 years on not there's anything wrong with that but that wasn't me that was a motivator yeah definitely and so sorry just something you said uh popped out of me so being known as the the data guy can you elaborate a little bit more yeah it's i think yeah it's, it's probably a good example of um where i found myself as the one eyed guy in the land of the blind all right, so not a, no great strength or, or whatever, but it was at a time when schools were taking notice of how well they were doing and heads and governors actually wanted a better grip on how the whole thing was doing and how they compared to others, you know, in particular with them starting to be compared with, you know, the whole tables thing was, was coming in. So I suppose what happened was I was in charge of exams. Now, these days, that would be an administrative function. But in those days, it was an additional responsibility for a teacher. And being in charge of that, I then started looking at, well, why are these students being put in for this? You know, why are there so many in this subject with the same kids, higher paper, why foundation? Why in this subject are, you know, girls doing better than boys, boys doing better than girls. Why Why is it doing so much better this year than last year and vice versa? And I just started asking questions and found that either people didn't have answers or they were interested in me finding out and then taking it from, and just taking it from there really. Um, and, you know, just seeking to answer them. And, and you know, the, the, the trouble is, as soon as you start answering those questions, more and more of them came. But that, that turned into an assistant head's job. So what what became a, here's a post in my first school where they had no one doing it, to by the time I was looking around at what to do next, the school where I became assistant head had one of those and wanted to replace them with another one. Hmm, Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's kind of like the uh, beginnings of the data-driven approach, which yeah, yeah, now yeah, yeah. is like very popular, right? It's, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember, I think my first two weeks going to another school in the borough, so borough next door in Enfield, where they had this new management information system. And I remember saying, right, how many columns can you have with this? And I said, oh, don't worry, I've got this sorted. I thought, all right, this will be good. He said, it's 10. Because of all the research we did, nobody ever wanted more than 10. And I sat there with my head in my hands, basically, just looking at what I was going to have to stitch together. How many 10s am I going to have to find, yeah. you know, for a for a child, you know, to all those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, it, it was at the start of that. It, I think... In those days, people used to say, oh, we're just being entirely driven in numbers. Compared to now, nothing like. Right. And you, you didn't have, you only had a big data set if you'd stitched many of them together. You know, so, you know, Excel still ran out of columns at 256 and all those kind of mm-hmm. things. And it was, it was spreadsheets rather than management information systems. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was doing all that without 
having the tools and and to be honest pre-internet you, you're still you're still working you know there isn't really windows properly yet all those all those kind of things you're you're really primitive in terms of hardware and software combined yeah yeah so was there anything um else aside from that that data kind of orientation mm. um that you might say either prepared you for becoming a head or also kind of gave you the edge in terms of getting that position? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if people look at me, you know, know, white, male, six foot, you know, all all those kinds of things. I'm, you know, certain that elements of my background made things easier for me, probably in a way I didn't appreciate at the time. And, you know, the confidence to, you know, to go for it and try and look credible in doing it. I think what emerged in me, though, was a real sense of, you know, social justice and what education was for. Because I hadn't, I'd barely set foot in a comprehensive school until I joined the senior team of one. Mm. Now, I didn't, didn't put that on my application form. But as soon as I got into Aylwood, you know, 1,400 kids, this incredibly diverse environment in a part of London that is not high profile and still isn't actually. Seen a little bit off the beaten track, you know, there's no, no tube station, you know, all those kind of things. I really took to that. I thought, okay, here, you know, here I can, I can try and do something. Mm-hmm. You know, and because I wondered if I'd be able to cut it in the inner city at all, actually, mm. you know, but coming from the sticks and, and, and so on. But as soon as as soon as I got into that, I think just the energy and I think what I found was whatever my age uh, and those kinds of things, people did make their own judgments about you mm. as to what you did, whether they were. You know, in some cases, 30 or 35 years older than me at the time. You know, and I was there as a member of senior staff. Yeah, so I think I just got stuck in and I did stuff. I, you know, I, I got money for kits for sports teams. I blew whistles. I helped with school disco. I ran trips. I just totally threw myself into the whole school experience and then found that things came from that. So looking back, it looks as though I had some, you know, real ambitious plan and, you know, I'd written it down on a bit of paper at 21, I'm going to be this, this, that, you know, and there wasn't any of that. I, I just found that, I suppose, doors opened as I went as I went along. Beyond that, nothing really. But then the further you go up the chain in a school, at least in those days, the less it mattered what you had taught. Hmm. You know, what you had taught mattered a lot if you're going to be a head of department because you can't be head of something you don't know. Once you get through the other side of that, that was less important. So um, I'm interested because some of the things that you mentioned were were kind of circumstantial, let's say, or mm. like you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. white male, like yeah, yeah, yeah. having the privilege that you might not have recognized. And yeah. in, in those days, it wasn't... Um, yeah, let's say people weren't as aware of it mm. uh, or they pretended not to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever way it was. But um, would you say that this route could be replicated today in today's climate by, let's say, anyone? Or, or do you think it, it has changed? I, I think... All right, so I was 27 when I got my assistant head's job. And 
33 when I got my head job. And I think that is more common today, actually. But what happens is it's done more commonly, perhaps, within the multi-academy trusts, where you've got so many parts of the job defined for you. You're, you're implementing the policy rather than having to write it as well in terms of the best practice around you and the support around you, you're within a much stronger network than before. Uh, and you've also got that there are various schemes that can exist, or, you know, whether it was future leaders, hmm. you know, and things like that, you know, that, which didn't exist at that time. I think it is more possible now um, than then, I suppose the different bit is there was a lot more that I didn't know I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> which is, I suppose, the, you know, hilarious just thinking back now as to how, you know, naive and, you know, everything else that I was at that point. I think I would have had a much stronger sense of what I did and didn't know if I was doing the same again today. And I would have more peers around me in the same or similar position. I mean, as it happens here, there was another head in Haringey mm -hmm. who was almost exactly the same age and had almost exactly the same level of experience. And that was, you know, that was helpful. I mean, you know, and we're still in touch from that. And that was really good. I think in terms of coming through without being able to teach a subject, or not without teaching a subject that's going to count a lot for exam results or being the head of year, or those kind of things. Probably rarer, but I'm sure those circumstances can still exist. Let's move ahead a little bit, okay. chronologically, I guess. So you served as the head for, for a while, and yeah. um, you want to tell us a, a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I was uh, okay. So I was head of um, two main schools, two main secondary schools, and then head of pupil referral unit at the end. And I met someone quite recently who was chair of governors at one of the schools, and he said to me, "I did always wonder how long you'd be able to keep up that energy for." Ah, uh, okay. You know, because not necessarily my energy, but just the energy to you know, to do the job. And I said, well, 12 years was the answer. You know, I couldn't have predicted at the time, you know, 12, you know, 12 years was it. So yeah, I was had nearly eight years here, had uh, for about half that time, uh, another one, and then came back, uh, came back to, to Haringey with the, the people referral unit. So yeah, I, I remember it really fondly. And, you know, I really enjoyed it, you know, the, the energy and, you know, the heart and soul you, you pour into it. I had, you know, I've seen heads write books and stuff, and I did wonder about it, and I thought, I know what I'll call it. But in the end, once I stopped and got off the treadmill, I thought, actually, I'm going to see what else I can do. I'm going to at least see what else I can do before getting back on. Right. Um, but in terms of like the you know the full throttle inner city experience working in areas that are, are pretty difficult or can be difficult and were at the time, you know it was really exhilarating hmm. for certain. And I, I still I still think there's no more exciting workplace than a big comprehensive school 
going at full throttle where you can you know you can walk around the corridors you know they're all on it they're all working they're all trying to better themselves get to the next level you know teachers all in it for the right reasons uh, you know all passionate about what they do you know I, I find that uh, I found that really quite intoxicating and I don't miss it because I've done it but I'm very very glad that I did have the opportunity to do it and I suppose for that length of time which is not as headship goes is not um you know a it's not a huge length of time by by any stretch but it was definitely long enough to have to have lived it mm-hmm. and you know the highs and lows that go with it yeah yeah and I'm sure a lot of heads who might make up the <laughs> primary part of this audience will will relate to parts of that for sure so now I think it, it would be a good time to talk about uh, what happened after headship, just in terms of you got out of it at, I think what most people would say was a relatively young age, and what else was there in the world of education to do after that? Um, no. I think heads might be interested. I think other people might be interested who maybe don't want to be heads but want to do something else. So Yeah, well, I'd had a sighter of this because... Um before I did, I did two and a bit terms at Pupil Referral Unit, which I loved and I'd recommend to everybody. Oh, sorry. And yeah. actually, can you yeah. explain uh, just to listeners who might not know, including what myself, one is, what, what one is, is a Pupil Referral okay, Unit? Okay, so yeah. it is alternative provision. So a small school for kids with particular needs or circumstances. And in that case, the main remit of it at that time was the students who have been permanently excluded Mm. where they go to ensure that they remain educated and hope hopefully you get as many of them back into mainstream schools as possible okay and i'm still i'm still involved with uh alternative revision and i would say actually as soon as you work in in alternative revision having worked in mainstream people look at you differently Hmm. because an awful lot of heads may never step foot in one. Right. And certainly not during the school day. They might go to a meeting or something like that, an event, but they don't actually know what it's like. And as soon as you've worked in more than one sector, people tend to look at you as though you have more to offer, actually, hmm. having actually made that. So I see myself as the transition from going in, in education for all those years to now working in leadership development more generally not just in education across different sectors, but, but beyond as well. Um, but that, there was definitely a transition with, with that. And what happened just before that, so I got to the September, I'd left the, last, uh, the second large school at the end of the previous year. And I remember going to the gym, um, which frankly was an event for me, having not done much of that during my, my headship years. I went to the gym on a Tuesday morning at about 11 o'clock. And it was full. And I thought, well, this is interesting. <laughs> right, what are you all doing here? You know, I didn't actually go around and ask them that. You know, I could have gone into learning walk mode and, you know, get some research. <laughs> but um, the answer was, well, we're working from home. Ah, right. <laughs> and I thought, well, you're not. But this is interesting. And my, my wife had come out of teaching mm, few years before that come out six seven years before maybe so I'd seen her um she stayed in the public sector but doing something very very different Hmm. 
so I looked at this and I thought, okay, this is interesting. You know, they're either working part-time or compressed hours or it doesn't matter when they work and all those kind of things. So I looked at myself, you know, having been in a big office with a big meeting table and a suit and tie and shiny-ish black shoes and a PA who, you know, handle the email and hot drinks for visitors, whatever. And I felt a bit like... There's a, there's a James Bond film where Judy Dench uh, becomes M. It's the first one she's M. Yeah. And she gets James Bond into her office and says, yeah, look, 007, you're a relic. I thought, okay. You know, 45. Uh, I've done that for, you know, a period of time. You know, what else can I do here? Uh, and also because I've become a dad at 40... 39, 40, hmm. which changed a lot of perspectives, you know, for me. And I, in my last years in the secondary school, I got very sick of not seeing her awake from Sunday night to Friday night. Hmm. And by the time that happens two or three times in a row or close together, I was thinking, okay, you know, I need to, I need to think about this. Yeah. I need to think about how I'm doing it, the job, or what or what I'm doing. So I'd had a taste of, here's a little bit of life beyond. Mm-hmm. Here's a bit of, oh, cafes are open during the day. Or even, you know, when the clocks change in October, you know, it was quite conceivable I would not see daylight because you'd arrive in the dark, you'd leave in the dark. Um, you would at break or lunch, I might actually be on a corridor somewhere or a meeting you know, so you're left thinking there's more to life than this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And for the first time ever, actually, for the, with the people referral unit, or with the small school, as I prefer to call it, I, you know, I did look at, you know, substantive job or even other substantive jobs in the same organisation. But in the end, I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to stop. Hmm. I'm just going to stop. And I'm going to give myself a year and see if I can make a living doing something else mm-hmm. and just see where that takes me, actually, rather than having to have everything planned out, that school development plan format with grids and stuff, which I still do for things I'm working on. Anyone who's worked with me, you know, might laugh at that. But I just <laughs> wanted to see what came. And so, what did come? I, I know HEP, HEP yeah, came HEP at came, some well, point. Well, the, to be honest, the fact that HEP was coming into existence at that point, so it oh, okay. hadn't, it was about to start. Mm-hmm. It was about to start. Um, and although I had turned down the opportunity for substantive work mm-hmm. by the time I'd had my interview to become a HEP partner, but... You know, I said, well, how many days work might this be, all the rest of it? So there was something about that. So I thought, right, okay, there's going to be some income mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. But then I started to think harder about what can I translate from what I have been doing mm-hmm. beyond education? Mm. And how do I actually package that beyond education? Um, so I, you know, I got myself a, 
I got coached, you know, someone to do that, you know, right, how do you actually translate from one workplace to the other, hmm. you know, and career change is definitely the biggest reason that individuals contact someone like that, as I've found myself. And I just started to pull together how I could articulate how I could help other people. Okay. Because I think in the public sector, you can get quite tied into the idea that the private sector knows best. Hmm. that the private sector has all the answers, that public is below private. And, of course, it's not, and it varies hugely. Yeah. You know, so just things like, right, how much money have you been responsible for? Uh, you know, 14 million quid, I think, was the sort of last budget. How many people did you ever see? 200, all right? Then there's your line managing them. You're getting people out on courses. You're dealing with safeguarding. You're dealing with, well, in addition to 200 adults, there's 1,400 kids right. plus two and a half to 3,000 parents plus plus community plus two big builder, you know, all that stuff. So actually, if you put all that together and, and don't include the word education in it, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, quite, there's quite a lot there. Mm-hmm. So... Having a very, very low boredom threshold, the idea of months of sitting on my hands, waiting to see what happened as the rest of the savings dwindled away, didn't particularly appeal. So, you know, in the next door room to me, my wife and daughter made a concerted effort to get through the entire Marvel universe in about the first month of lockdown. (laughs) And I started to get myself qualified. So I, so I thought, all right, I was very young coming into senior leadership and had to teach and had to survive. And I've worked with and appointed others, you know, had to identify people at a young stage. I thought, actually, they're going to make it, whether here or somewhere mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And bringing people through and all those kinds of things. And there's a real, there's a real need for that everywhere. On top of that, everyone's got the same issues about managing others, managing upwards, managing time. You know, there's so many generic issues that that flow across everything. You know, when it comes to leadership teams and the politics of workplaces and how much time gets wasted on this stuff Hmm. around the place, you know, the, the more I sort of looked into the literature of this Mm. it reminded me of me coming into senior leadership and headship where I backfilled or tried to backfill the years of experience I didn't have by reading right right I'm just reading a lot now this is before you know before make me sound so ancient you know the, the sort of the podcast world now you know the content that there is know you know youtube and vimeo all those kind of things you know it basically meant working my way through the leadership section of the local waterstones mm-hmm. or going to foils you know or, or something like that and all of the, those books which i'd kept and i suppose what i learned from them i still found really useful when it came into mm-hmm. this so whether it's working with someone in the nhs or someone working for one of the big accountants, you know, and those kinds of things, you know, the issues were generic. Hmm. And I thought, well, okay, um, a lot of the time, coaching is not a regulated industry. Yeah, okay. So 
um, there's a lot of people who are coaches and I'm sure can be very good at it, but they haven't gone, they're not qualified and they're not accredited either. But I thought actually to convince my former peers and my contacts Mm -hmm. that I was serious about this rather than just he's going to do it for a year then he's going to want to go back into a school or be forced to go back into a school because you're not (laughs) earning you know I thought right I'll get myself a website I'll get myself qualified and all these kind of things and then I found um there were more people you know some of which I knew or contacts of contacts who were prepared to engage with me because they thought okay if this works we can actually keep him Ah, rather than you'll start a program get halfway through and it's well I can't run it now because I'm going off to going off to run a school Hmm. so I would say to anybody who is thinking about what comes after headship at whatever age they are there's a lot that you gain from running a school Mm -hmm. that you can apply elsewhere you know so whether it's whether it's those kinds of issues I, you know, I talked about, but also just the sort of strategic side of things and, you know, how people delegate to anybody else, how they, you know, in schools, we're very used to the school year and it's all neatly brought to half terms and terms and academic year and the end of the year, here's your results, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It's a natural cycle. And a lot of a lot of businesses you don't have that yeah so you might have to report your results or at least report to the bank what you're doing but you find that the school year actually gives you a discipline and a sense of cycles with it whether it's reporting to governors whether it's here's the exam results the mocks here's open evening here's results day all those kind of things and you can you know you can work with people to find their own way of doing that so that the, the classic thing of the innovator becomes the founder becomes the ceo right and then discovers they were far better innovating and founding than being the ceo <laughs> uh. you know so i don't i don't do scale up coaching per se there's other people who do that and are, are better at that but you can you can at least engage with the territory. Okay. And I think when you've worked in really diverse environments, you you can get pretty good at dealing with what anybody throws at you, actually, because you're just working with a lot of people whose perspectives um, are different to your own. Hmm. You have to do a lot of listening and understanding to be able to cut through to what the bigger issues might be. You know, the UK has become a more diverse place since I started being ahead. And I think that's also been helpful, particularly doing the work in London, Hmm. where I suppose you just develop your antennae a little bit as to why it might actually be behind an issue rather than as presented. Right. You know, and all those kinds of things. It's, um, you know, I think in a school environment, it's amazing what you might come across and have to deal with and find out about mm-hmm. in any in any day. Yeah. And if you can actually describe that to other people, because I think people have image of their head teacher or principal 
well, you know, they sit in the office and they see them occasionally, might do an assembly. Uh, you know, obviously there's more to it than that. But they, when you're a kid, you don't know that. Definitely, yeah. And all the management of resources that goes on behind behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah. So it actually equips you to work beyond the world of running a school a lot more than people might think. Yeah, and I, I, I love that point, and I think it is really important because... I mean, even just now kind of thinking in my head of all the ways that, you know, running a school or even just actually running even a classroom goes into like skills of management and all the kind of different situations that pop up um, because, yeah, teachers and heads deal with a lot. Well, look, the same is true with teachers. The same is true. I mean, I remember talking to friends and they'd say about you know, how hard teachers work or not, you know, in their view. And I'll say, okay, if you had to do a 50-minute presentation to your peers, how long would you want to work on that? I'd be, oh, yeah, two weeks, probably two weeks, right. <laughs> and what else would you be doing at that time? Oh, that's it, 50 minutes, that's it. So, right, you want two weeks for that, all right. Now try doing that 20-plus times a week, Seven weeks in a row, week off, do it again. Yeah. Now, it's not quite the same as to adults and presenting and materials and so on. Sure. But as an analogy, that's where I could see people got it. Mm-hmm. In terms of the depth of work that exists behind what a teacher might be doing at any one point. And I think as teachers, if I put myself in that category briefly, we can really undersell just the the breadth of skills that you have to have to be able to pull that off, you know, day in, day out with whatever age group of kids you've got in front of you. So, yeah, there's there's an awful lot that we have that we don't recognise maybe when you're in the cocoon of a school day in, day out. But when you get outside, you realise hmm. you, you do have that. And is that something that you might try to bring out of people? I mean, I just, I don't know who you coach. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I assume actually it's probably not so much uh, teachers. No, yeah. it's not. It's not. Yeah. I, I work with, the different categories tend to be either people who are brand new in post as a senior leader or a CEO hmm. and are finding their feet. I need them support to help them do that. Um. Or it's people who are established at, say, middle management, middle leadership level or senior level, and they're looking for the next stage up. Right. Or it's people who have been in post for a while, often the CEO or near to it, where they've just hit a bit of a plateau. They've hit a bit of a plateau. The, you know Decisions that they might have taken a while ago when they first came in, they're still having to live with. Mm. And they've just sort of lost the external view of it. They've lost a bit of perspective with it, you know, and they just want a little bit of re-energizing, refocusing, and just someone coming from outside to to look. So that's, you know, that's generally who it is. I don't do, I'm definitely not a life coach, although inevitably when you're talking to people, you know, these things come up, you know, it's part of the context. Sure. You know, it's a confidential conversation. So things that are impacting them at any one time will um, come into it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's generally, it, it's all about overcoming leadership challenges. Right. You know, whether it's you've just got stuck yourself, whether you're dealing with an awful problem, you might be about to be taken over, which could be a good thing, a bad thing. How do you stand out? You know, you might be change, wanting to change career. 
you might notice that the person ahead of you is going to retire in a year or two. How do you get yourself in the best place? Mm. All those kind of things. And, and you realise the sort of hypercognitive nature of the profession where you're having to absorb a lot of information all the time in a classroom or across a school mm-hmm. actually helps you get your head around and pull together the circumstances that are being described and you're able to actually reflect back to them what they've just said and you then start hitting on those sort of light bulb moments that they can then start to to move from because it is coaching and mentoring is a scale but it's at its most powerful when the people are coming to their own conclusions and if you can help them organize their own thoughts generate their own confidence you know you, you can see outcomes very quickly yeah yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think a lot of um, teachers and hopefully the people who listen will be interested and, and maybe also empowered by um, hearing you talk about how translatable the skills from education can be into, into other things. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. I want to ask a couple more things. One of the things that just kind of stuck out in my mind was when you were talking about when you became a head and you were filling in the experience. Yeah, backfilling, yeah, yeah. Trying to read up what I hadn't learned. Yeah, Yeah, um, and I I think that's great. Obviously, a lot of people have have trouble finding the time to get into literature, right? I mean, Mm. now, as you said, there's so much more content out there, Mm. so people can maybe listen to podcasts if that's their thing. Um, But obviously, reading, I would say, is probably the bulk of it. Yeah, how were you able to do that? And do you feel like that really helped? And you you mm. said you still bring some of those ideas that mm. you read about. Yeah, you want to... Well, I suppose I always enjoyed the academic nature of the job. All right, so including in teaching, you know, if you're in a city school and you've got, you know, a kid who's just arrived in the country sitting here, a kid who's the high flyer, you know, potential Oxford or Cambridge candidate sitting there, differentiation or adaptation as now more commonly known you know it is it's a lifetime's craft and it is an academic challenge so I enjoyed that side of things partly though there was also an element of defense mechanism because I thought unless I like mug up a bit and at least make some effort to look as though I know what I'm doing then um, you're going to sink here Mm. so I suppose whether it's something that went with the program, you know, I'd, I'd just find things or find recommendations and, and so on. And it would be a case of in a school holiday or whatever, you, you're just going to you're just going to mug up. When I think back where I found the time, I'm not sure really, um, but I know I went from the next to the next to the next. I was quite quite voracious with it. In terms of the advantage I see that I had against now is. I although I do see the purpose of TED Talks and social media and so on and use them myself, I do worry about the depth these things go into. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to look up, for example, you know, Covey's Seven Habits, you know, there's a one page handout. If you're really going to understand it, you need to read the book. Right. Uh, and the same's true of some of these other things. So you you can you can cut across the surface of so many things in quite a A to Z or A to Z um, <laughs> out formulaic way. 
but whether you've sort of really taken it in, you know, and I, I find that there's a, probably quite a small group of books that I will go back to occasionally rather than go to something go to something new and just remind myself of a few hmm. key principles. I think some of this literature is is pretty timeless. Yeah. And even if the world changes, a lot of the principles still hold up. Right, right. So it was at a time when self-help books were definitely a thing yeah, yeah. and were attracting, you know, bookcase space in the shops and so on. But there was definitely a bit of... Um, you, you're probably out of your depth here. <laughs> you know, you have to do. You've got to do something. You've got to do something about that to be able to hang on to it. Because if you don't, what happens next? Yeah. You know. So that that fear of don't fall off the rung you have apparently found yourself on was quite a driver. Some might call that kind of like imposter syndrome, right? That you kind of feel uh, everybody. Like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, but but but, but every look. There wasn't. A single staff briefing I went into without a little edge of nerves, right, even when doing it for like the 500th time or whatever it was, because I knew I had to be ready for them. So if I didn't have little notes in my diary and if I hadn't thought it through and didn't know what was going on, I know that you know the quality of what I did would fall apart very, very quickly. So, yeah. And also I find through coaching... That's true of a lot of people that they may the imposter syndrome may prevent a lot of people going for jobs, hmm. which is why coaching programs can be very helpful. But also for a lot of people who get them, it never quite leads leaves them either. Yeah, okay. and that sort of that professional support at the side where they can say what they like, be as vulnerable as they like, and it's not loaded in any way can be very very powerful. So we are probably nearing the end here, but I wanted to ask you about um, what kind of things are you interested in these days? And what is the, yeah. What's the stuff? What's the stuff? Well, I mean, the whole thing about the portfolio life is that you can pick and choose a bit. So, yeah, I'm still doing some school work, although that's sort of becoming smaller by the year. I'm doing, I do the one-to-one coaching and do the leadership team stuff, which I, you know, well, I love it all, but I really love this because you're then getting under the skin of some really quite, quite big things. Mm. And when that really works, and which is what I'm seeing, you can have a really significant impact on a place. Um, but what I'm spending most time on at the moment is the, the content around Generation Z, which... I feel very passionate about, which I've, you know, I'm now speaking about at conferences and events and, and so on. Uh, and it is a real generic issue across lots of places. And the starting point for that was I heard one snowflake comment in the media or overheard in a restaurant or a pub, you know, too often. And I thought, okay, this was, you know, my first year seven as a head were the first of that generation in school. Hmm. So my time as a head, this is primarily the you know the young people that are are served. So I got really fed up of how I heard them being depicted, and particularly that it seemed to be my own generation that was doing it. 
Um, and you know, we're not talking about different species um, here, but you know, <laughs> the, the changes in technology, economically, you know, world events, and so on. I, I do think there has been a shift, and I'm finding leader after leader, organisation after organisation, not being able to work out how they can recruit, retain, motivate in some cases, you know, get get on the same page. Yeah. You know, so I just find a lot of conflating, you know, millennials and Gen Z and you're talking about quite an age range across across you know, across all of that. Yeah. Um and, you know, when I look how how hard that generation worked and continues to work at school and what they've achieved and what they've inherited in terms of economic circumstances climate you know, yeah right climate you know all those all those kinds of things i see that they've got a huge amount to offer but what they have come to expect for how the world works i, I think there are in some cases, some tweaks. In some cases, some whole-scale changes that organisations need to make in order to be seen as relevant, worth joining, worth staying with. Mm. So I think if there's anyone listening who I've worked with might recognise this, as soon as I sort of took the top of that particular bottle, I thought, OK, I'm, you know, I'm off. And what's been interesting is... On the one hand, the people in the organisations, uh, you know, are found you know very receptive to the message and the strategies and, and so on, but they can be quite different to how they are as parents. So okay. as parents, you know, child with a first class degree and all these great qualifications and all these things, but when they're the employer, you know, struggling to hold on to people or to keep them or dealing with flexibility requests or whatever else it might be, mm-hmm. uh, they end up being a bit stuck. So yeah. part of the challenge has actually been to translate their perspective as a parent or as, you know, whether a parent or not, you know, in their extended family, you know, they'll have seen these young people come through. Once they can pull that whole picture together, um, things can work very differently. So, yeah, going round the country, going round, you know, different kinds of organisations and supporting them with these issues and talking to the young people themselves. I'm just fascinated to find out, you know, right, that was your school experience. Looking back now, what do you what do you make of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really into that and I'm trying to talk to as many people who will have me... Um, it talk stuff and but also they become coaching topics as well because generational sure. divides yeah there's there's a lot in that I and mean, we're now there's always been multi-generational workplaces but now we not just say two now with you know where retirement age is you know now it's up to three or four yeah there's some real workplace challenges around that so yeah it's a meaty problem and I'm enjoying getting underneath it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, honestly, I feel like we could have a whole another podcast discussion about that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you how it's going. So it's going in a year's time. Yeah, so there yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll we'll uh, bring you in with a member of Gen Z and... Uh, oh, we can argue. A... Yeah, and, yeah, yeah well... and can unpick the whole thing and say it should be going in there. Well, look, it's not that I think they need a spokesperson. Right. I think it's that my generation needs some listening. things... Yeah. 
and I suppose I find myself in a position where I can compare, yeah. where if you're the person in the early 20s, not having lived through... 80s, 90s, you know, doesn't, doesn't have the same context. So that's what it yeah. is. It's not, it, it's most frequently not me working with the young people themselves. That does happen. It's with the leaders. So they're in the best position to thrive with them. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's fascinating stuff. And even as I, I guess I would identify as a millennial myself, and I can even notice the difference between myself and my younger you know, colleagues oh, yeah. or, or uh, people I went to school with, things like that. So, yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, I'll come back then. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll accept. You have an open invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank absolutely. you very much. All right, great, Alex. Well, um, before I let you go, uh, what do you think? Is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? Well, I'm doing a, um, I suppose the one education project I'm doing, there's an anti-racist, educa- anti-racism, sorry, education project with a big record label that's coming down the way at some point. So, yeah. But, yeah, if anyone has heard anything or thought like to hear more about it, then, yeah, I've, I've got a .com now. Yeah, www.alexatherton.com. And, yeah, always delight to people reach out and ask me anything, really. Having been on this journey myself and not expected to be at this point, you know, it'd be you know lovely to help others in a similar position. Yeah, that's great. And we will definitely link your website in the show notes. So it will be available. (laughs) Okay, thanks very much, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. That was Alex Atherton, former head teacher and current HEP improvement partner and not life coach, but leadership coach. We talked about many things in this podcast, including Alex's path to headship, which is slightly unorthodox, as well as the changing nature of the UK education system and how skills learned in schools can translate into other areas of work. If you're interested in learning more about what Alex does, you can visit his website at www.alexatherton.com. We'll also have a link in the show notes. If you're enjoying these interviews, or have some feedback, or have something important to say about education, get in touch. Email me at luke.kemper at heringayeducationpartnership.co.uk. Maybe you'll be featured on the next Hep Talks podcast. We have more Hep Talks interviews on the way, and the brief will be restarting very shortly as well. So, welcome to the new year, and thank you for listening to Hep Talks.